Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. You know what I love about our episodes? What's that? Is that each one has its own character. Some are very technical, based on a lot of tips that we can give listeners, and others kind of have their own journey into someone's personal life and their stories around food. And I love how every episode, we never know what we're going to get, and then it becomes this amazing journey for us. That's true, because sometimes we pop on thinking it's going to be super technical and we get a great story of someone's life, like Maria Lawton. Do you remember that episode where she told us about immigrating to the United States from Portugal and what a journey she took us on? It was amazing. It was the kind where you want to wrap yourself up with a cup of tea or wine and just and listen to an adventure. And then others, like gluten-free baking, which had a lot of technical tips. Super technical. We got nitty gritty on that one, all about the details of which flour blend and how to get started with gluten-free baking. And we've got a great technical one coming up, one close to my heart, buttercream people, all about buttercream coming soon. Everyone's going to go nuts over that one. All of the expertise that everyone brings to that episode is phenomenal. Cake party. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today is very special. We have an amazing, amazing guest, David Late, who is the author of Late's Culinaria. It's a blog that began in 1999 and has won a James Beard Award. He's won two others. He has one cookbook called The New Portuguese Table, and he has a memoir out that was just released last year called Notes on a Banana. And this conversation we recorded in the summer, and it weaves its way through many different topics, including his journey to self-acceptance, his food memories, what it means to be Portuguese, of course, his books, um, his orange olive oil cake, which I'm going to bake today to promote this episode. I'm really excited about that. He also talks about discovering his family's wood-burning oven, talks about being an immigrant or the son of an immigrant family. He also talks about your favorite type of cake... Chocolate cake. (laughs) And the fact that he wrote this um, James Beard nominated article for the New York Times all about chocolate chip cookies. Also a favorite. (laughs) Right? Of yours as well. (laughs) David, welcome to Flower Hour. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to talk to you. We've been looking forward to this very, very much, and we really appreciate you coming on. Sure. We're really excited to speak about your newest book, Notes on a Banana, Memoir of Food, Love, and Manic Depression. Can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Oh, gosh. Well, the fact that I love food, and uh, I'm manic depressive, and I've fallen in love. But I think the the big determiner was, uh, it's a story that I've told many times now, I wanted to write a blog post about the 100th anniversary of Julia Child's birthday. And I just remember when I was a kid, like 12 or 13 years old, I used to watch uh, the French chef on television. And 
I was in a very weird state, a very, um, what I found out many years later was a depressed state, and how watching her always made me feel better. And I wrote the piece, and I shared it with some colleagues, and also with my partner, Alan, whom I call The One, and he and everyone else said, you know, you're going to lose readers because they don't know you as having bipolar. At this point, I had been diagnosed with bipolar uh, disorder. I put it aside. I thought, okay, fine. And then I decided, no, I really need to do this. I have to put this out. So two years later, I put it out. And as soon as I did, there was this immense response from readers, both publicly and privately, leaving comments on the blog and, and the website and also emails to me. And I thought that's where it was going to stay. But there was this one woman who wrote me privately and said, I wish my son had read this before he took his own life. And it was that that made me realize if I can tell my story and if I can help others see themselves differently, help parents, help educators, uh, friends, family, maybe help someone who's in need, it's my job to do this. And so it was pretty easy to fold in the food and also fold in the idea of struggling with coming out and being gay because I couldn't tell one story without the other because they're so intricately involved in my life. And that's how the three topics in that book came about. Absolutely brilliant. I have goosebumps hearing this. Yeah, I love it. I think it's so um, brave and unique of you to be able to share all of that. And I love that I like that you said that they're kind of so intricately weaved together because mm -hmm. I totally agree. So many times food is talked about in sort of a vacuum or right. either mental health is talked about as this like independent topic and, and our lives are just not that way. So I think it's a really cool way that you combined it all because that's how it is in real life. Um, exactly. And so it's, I think it's incredibly powerful how much food has meaning in our lives. Mm -hmm. How does that part, the food part, weave its way through the book? Well, it's interesting. All three of those topics, food, love, and manic depression, it's really a story about self-acceptance and accepting who we are, our limitations, and our strengths. I grew up in as Jeremiah did, in a Portuguese home. And this was back in the 60s. I'm significantly older than both of you. And I did not want to be Portuguese. I wanted to be the adopted son of Samantha and Darren Stevens on Bewitched. I wanted to eat McDonald's. I wanted to eat all those foods that I was seeing on television, these mothers coming out of their kitchen and pirouetting and putting down things made with Velveeta. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Instead, I was eating pulvu, which is octopus, and I was eating kovj, uh, which is kale, kale soup, potato and kale soup, and and beans, and all these other things that... Uh, there were many people in, in our neighborhood and many people around us who were Portuguese, but I wasn't... I, I, I didn't want to eat those things. And so the journey of going from being a young kid and really despising being Portuguese, despising uh, eating Portuguese food, and the arc of accepting the fact that I am Portuguese and going so far as to get my Portuguese citizenship in, I think, 2004, and embracing Portuguese cuisine until ending up writing a cookbook about Portuguese cuisine itself, The New Portuguese Table. So that's that journey. That's that part of the food. And that's how it it played out in my life. And I'm still discovering more and new things about Portuguese cuisine. Uh, because when you go to the mainland, my family is from the Azores. And when you're a kid, you think whatever you eat is what everyone in the world eats. Like when I thought everyone ate 
exactly what I ate when it came to Portuguese food. The truth of the matter is there are so many variations out there. There are so many different recipes and, and different ways of doing the same dishes that my family had and has. So therefore, I, I keep discovering new dishes, new ways of cooking, new ways of expressing my heritage through my trips back to Portugal, the most recent being in May of this year. So that's a bit about the connection of Portuguese. And then later in the book, I do talk about meeting the one, Alan, and how I was young, thin, and beautiful. I'd lost all this weight. I wasn't about to eat anymore. I was going to be thin the rest of my life. And then he bakes a cake, and that was it. I was off to the races. I just <laughs> wanted to start baking. There was this visceral sense memory when he said, you want to lick the bowl. And I was trying to study for a test. I had gone back to school to be a therapist, which I never did and I never became. And so I said, sure. And the smell and the texture of the batter and the look of the batter just hurtled me back to my childhood. And after talking to my mom, who I knew didn't bake at all, and my godmother, my madrinha, who would make things like puddings, and that was her thing, but she wasn't a baker. I found out my grandmother was the baker, and then I remembered, after all those years, 30-something years, baking with my grandmother. And so it kind of ties it all together. Oh, it's so powerful. Oh. Tell us about baking with your grandmother. Sure. Uh, you know, my grandmother, it's interesting, my, my grandmother never baked from a recipe, never, I'm sorry, never cooked with a recipe. But in America, she was trying to recreate some of the dishes that she had in Portugal. And they were very poor, the island of San Miguel. And so she, corn was very big when she was growing up. And that's a lot of what they had in many of the, many of the different courses, including also dessert. So I remember you guys are probably too young to know this, but the Jiffy Corn Muffin Mix. Do you guys know what that is? Oh, I grew up with it. Okay. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that seems to be the one memory that I have. And I know she made other things too, but I remember making the Jiffy Corn Muffins, and she'd made them as make it as a cornbread in a skillet, not knowing anything about Southern cuisine, not knowing that anyone else in the world made them in skillets. Uh, she just made them in her cast iron skillet and put them in the oven. And I remember, I remember that. And the the other thing I remember, which I think crosses over also into cooking, is she would pull one of the uh, metal, the patent leather chrome chairs from our her. Um, dining set over to the the stove and the counter backwards so then I would stand up and she'd put one of my grandfather's work shirts on me backwards and button it behind my neck and roll up my sleeves and that was my smock That's and we so would cute. cook side <laughs> by side and by that point and by at that height I was about up to her uh, her shoulder and we would cook and she'd let me stir things or stir the batter. She'd let me taste the batter, lick the batter, which I think is where that memory came from when Alan all those years later asked me to do the same thing. Um, and that was a sweet batter. That was a, um, he was making, we believe from what we can put together was a pineapple upside down cake, pineapple upside down cake, at least in my family, uh, was very big. And I think because on the Island of San Miguel, there's all these pineapple plantations. And I think that she must've made something like that because that's the flavor that I zoomed in on. Another story that I love that you tell is about how Alan taught you how to enjoy food. Will you tell that story? <laughs> sure. Uh, as I said, I was young, thin, and beautiful when we met uh, 25 years ago this year. 
which is like 69 years in straight years. And Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. You converted it. That's I did. hilarious. Okay. It's like donkey years and cat years and there's straight years. And, uh, I, in my family and Jeremiah, I don't know if this is how you are in your family, when we're all together and when there was the most of us in the family at one time, we would have sometimes 20, 25 people at a table. And it would be all of the women would cook. They'd put the food down. We'd eat. And within 20 minutes of eating, the table's cleared. The men are sitting in their, their chairs in the backyard. The kids are playing in the street. And the women are getting ready for the next meal. We didn't linger over the table. We didn't linger over... Uh, what we had just eaten because there was the next meal for all these people that had to be made. And so we weren't lingerers. Yet Alan, and he didn't grow up uh, being a lingerer either. It was very much, it was very, it was a dodge. It was emotional dodgeball with his stepfather because it was always very stressful at the table for him. And so he couldn't wait to get out. When we finally met up, he would even even when we were getting hamburgers the like the i think two for three or whatever back then years ago at uh, burger king he would set a table with candles and plates and glasses and music and he would lay out the hamburger and he would lay out the french fries and he would want to linger after a meal and i used to get so antsy and still can get so antsy cuz i'm just used to getting up and he taught me how to dine. See, my family, we were about eating. We ate, we cooked, we went and did our stuff. And it's very much in keeping with what my family did back in the old country, because you got up very early. You usually ate the soup or whatever the meal was from the night before for breakfast. You went out into the fields, worked, you came home, you ate, you went back to work, you came home and you were in bed very early because you had to get up early. And I think some of that stayed with my family and about how they were at the dinner table. Um, but with Alan, it was something different. And to this day, he just wants everybody to stay at the table. And if he could have people stay at the table an hour to two hours after the meal, he would be thrilled beyond belief. <laughs> I love <laughs> that you make the distinction between eating and dining because so many yes. people use that interchangeably, but it's a very different act for sure. And it really is. I definitely identify with the one because I love to dine. It's such a different experience than just getting the food in the body, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. I can go either way. I know that antsy feeling for sure. Yeah. And also the feeling of like, I just never want this dinner to end, you know, these people and the conversation and the food. Yeah. All right. So let's shift gears a bit because I definitely want to make sure we have time to, to talk fully about it. I love your concept of the banana project. Right. And I'd love for you to explain that so our listeners can learn about it and hopefully participate. Sure. Uh, it's, the banana project comes from the title of the book, Notes on a Banana. And where that came from, the title, uh, the book was going to be called something else. It was going to be called Happiness Backwards. And what ended up happening with the title was, ever since I was a kid, I would wake up in the morning and at my spot at the breakfast counter, we didn't have a table, it was a counter that my father uh, built for us, would be a banana. And on one end, my mother would have written, we love you. On the other end, she would have written, um, God bless. And in the middle part, the big real estate part for that day, 
it would, there would be something related to what was going on. So it, it would be do well in your geometry test, do well in your spelling test, uh, break a leg tonight in the school play, whatever it was. And she would write these notes on a banana to me. And she wrote them on my father's bananas too. And so he'd go to work and all the guys would uh, joke with him and tease him that his wife's writing on his banana. And um, <laughs> so I had, you know, I had forgotten all about that, but I'd gone home for Mother's Day in 2014. And my mother had, as she always does when I go home, even as an adult, wrote on a banana saying, you know, you've made me a mother. I'm so proud to be a mother or something like that. I posted it on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And the response was so huge that I realized there really is a message in what my mother's trying to do and what she did all these years. And so I thought, I'm naming the book, I'm calling the book Notes on a Banana. And then I've now turned it into the Banana Project, where I've asked people to take that notion and write on a banana to someone you love. And I've had teachers do buy 150 bananas for their school and write on them for the lunch program. Uh, I've had parents do it to children, children to parents, and just write a message of love on a banana, take a photograph of it, snap it, hashtag it, notes on a banana, all one word, and put it up on social media. And if we can start spreading this idea of love, it's I call it social media of the 1960s. That's what my mom was doing. My mom created social media because basically <laughs> she'd write this thing and it would be just, it'd be gone in 24 hours later, like Snapchat or the stories on Instagram. They're gone. And just wanting everyone to kind of partake in this this one act of love, this one act of, of caring for someone else in a, in a unique, fun way. We eat a banana every single morning in our house. Like all of us, we have banana and peanut butter. So it's <laughs> a very natural fit for our exactly. family. <laughs> and peanut butter banana sandwiches, I talk about them in the book, are my favorite, favorite sandwiches I had growing up. And I still love them. Oh, they're just the best. They are. If you could give a banana to your young self, what would it say? It gets better. I think that's what I would have said. (laughs) There were so many problems as a kid, um, you know, fighting against this notion of hating who I was uh, and also getting from people around me very young saying things about, you know, it's a horrible way of talking about it, dumb Portuguese, stupid Portuguese. And it's a real insulting way to refer to Portuguese people. And the fact that I didn't know what was wrong with me as early as 10 years old, even earlier than that, I knew that I was different. I could tell emotionally, not even the, the gay aspect of, of things, because they say some kids know as early as, you know, as soon as they're really aware that something is different. For me, it was that I knew that I wasn't experiencing the world the way other kids my age were were and so for me if i could see that kid i would just give him a banana that says it gets better because i'd never i always hoped that i would have come to understand what was plaguing me both the gay element and also the bipolar and the manic depression element but i got to the point where i just wasn't sure that that was going to happen after years and years of and not working. It just uh, everything I tried just didn't work. It's so, so it's special that you're telling us this and that your story is out there because so many people relate to this. It's such a powerful message for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. I feel like no matter what those things are that are hard for you to accept, um, yeah. you know, we have a very different background and current life, but I can sit here and identify with you deeply on, on these thoughts and, such a valuable thing to share. Um, 
I really appreciate how your book is about accepting yourself. And one of those mm-hmm. things was being Portuguese mm-hmm. and you kind of talked a bit about that arc. I'm curious what Portuguese being Portuguese means to you now and, and what Portuguese food, you know, totally connected means to you now. Right. Well, it's interesting. I think it followed the same arc that coming out and accepting myself as a gay man did when it came to being Portuguese. It's inextricably bound up with who I am. I, I, I have, you know, now graying brown hair. That's who, that's what I have. And I'm Portuguese and I'm gay. It's, it's, you can't separate that from who I am. But earlier on, I used to go in and I would tell people I was Italian. I would I would lie about my my heritage because Leet doesn't look what well, late in Portuguese, but it doesn't look Portuguese to people. It looks more German. Uh, so I would I would make up different nationalities and say, oh, it was short when my family came to America because I didn't want to be it. I, I separated myself. Uh, from that. So, and the same thing with Portuguese food. It's what I ate when I was home. It's what my family served. But God forbid, I didn't want anybody coming over, any of my waspy friends, my non-Portuguese friends. So everyone, the world is divided into two groups, Portuguese and wasps. That's all it was with growing up for me. And I didn't want kids coming over. I didn't want them having some of the foods that I had growing up. Yet I would love to go to their house and have tuna fish sandwiches on toast or pot roast or or sloppy joes i mean those are the things that i just i just died for to have uh, and nowadays so the same way my portuguese identity is something that's completely inseparable from who i am portuguese food is too i i it's just what i cook often not all the time but what i cook and it's the first it's always the first food or almost always the first cuisine i will cook for new guests because it's a it's a, a peek into my heritage. It's a peek into the flavor profiles of of some of the uh, the food that I ate growing up, and also foods in other parts of of Portugal. And it's like it's this culinary handshake, if you will, uh, that says so much to people, and it familiarizes them with the food. Culinary handshake. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> I love that a lot. Yeah. And, and it is, I mean, I feel like such a great way to say, this is who I am and mm-hmm. kind of open yourself in that natural and, and raw way. Oh, I love yeah. that. I don't know about you, David, but I love too. is a lot of people haven't experienced Portuguese food and just to watch their faces as they try some of these dishes for the first time is so exciting. And And they say, and I'm sure you heard this many, many times, I didn't know what Portuguese food was and I didn't know it could be this delicious. Exactly. The two things I hear all the time. I don't know what it is. Isn't it Spanish food? That always always gets me. And then I didn't know it could be so tasty. (laughs) Yeah, I love to blow their minds. Yeah. It's, it's so fun. I'm one of those people right here. And Jeremiah is my uh, access to all things Portuguese. So yeah. <laughs> he's done a great job of blowing my mind with the beautiful flavors. Well, if you could have any baked good right now, Portuguese or non, that would connect you with a strong family memory, what would that be? Any baked good. Um, it would be my grandmother late's Masa Savana which is Portuguese sweetbread. And it's, I kind of say it's like a brioche, but it's sweeter than brioche. And we, there'd be these big 
it's bold massa is what we would call them these big domes and they'd be round um in this pan in this big dome it's like a big big mushroom and it's shellacked uh like mahogany because there's all this uh, egg wash on top and i used to love having that for breakfast and it always brought me back to my my grandmothers and to my aunts my mother never made it nor did my her mother my uh vovo costa but that's something that really really anchors me back to that table. Amanda, have you heard that before? Oh, what is this masa savada that you speak of? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeremiah's love affair with that uh, particular bake has um, found its way into my heart yeah. and, and oh, I've yeah. heard so much about it that it's it's on a very high pedestal for sure. <laughs> and Jeremiah, yeah. do you make habanada with it? The French, the French toast using uh, the masa. Now that I have not heard of. <laughs> that sounds really good. It either, it's either called fatiage to some people, which means slices or uh, habanadas. I don't know why, but that's just what the name is. And um, I used to, as a kid, when we get a little stale, uh, they would make French toast out of it. And God, it was so delicious. My family is very interesting about all of this stuff because I'm third generation and um, my grandmother, she kind of waffles most of her life. She's tried not to be Portuguese. Yes. Yes. And so, and it's strange as I like, I spend more time with my family in the Azores. I see all these things about our family that are just very Portuguese and we don't even know it is. And so like we, we're now um, talking a lot about, you know, family memories and stuff with my grandma. Her health isn't so well. So we're just, you know, really soaking up stuff from her and, we were talking about, I was talking about Chabanadish with her, and I was like, did your mom ever do stuff like that? She's like, oh yeah, she always did. And I was, <laughs> so it's kind of cool to be here, like maybe she didn't do it for us, but it was happening, and yeah. then my mom and her sisters were like, oh, that's what that was, and and she'd be like, oh, well, she made malasada, she would just take yeah, um, yeah. sweet bread dough, and she would just fry it. Those were her malasadish. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. That sounds like the lineage of what that probably originally was. Like exactly. Leftover mala- yeah. masa bread. There wasn't enough to make uh, another masa, and they did it because exactly. malasada means badly cooked. And I think it's because exactly. the, the malasadish, which are Portuguese donuts, like fritters, they're all pockmarked and, and they're mal-shapened, yeah. uh, but they are incredibly delicious. And they are the forerunner or the ancestor of the very famous Hawaiian malasadish and Hawaiian donuts, uh, the Portuguese donuts there, which are very Americanized and round and very buxom. You know, but that they yeah. come, they come from the Portuguese malasada. Yeah, so you're you're like my irmão with um, masa suvada. I love. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to know more about your book, New Portuguese Table, since we're kind of on that topic. Sure. Anyway, so is there a recipe for the masa suvada in there, there or is. what kind of things could we? see in that book? Um, there's lots and lots of recipes. Uh, it's a combination when I was approached by Clarkson Potter to do a Portuguese cookbook, and we both decided that since there were, at that time, not as many as there are now, but there were a lot of books that dealt with classic Portuguese cuisine, so they wanted to have family favorites and also maybe some new riffs on classics as well as some classics. So you'll find family favorites, classics, and contemporary takes on classics. So Masa Sovada is in there, which is a casserole of potatoes and onion and salt cod and egg and olives and a lot of olive oil. There's bakliyao braj, which is, again, another salt cod dish that's mixed with uh, scrambled eggs and also fried potato sticks. And there's some olives on that. The Portuguese, of course, love olives. But then there's all 
a bunch of different things. I went to this wonderful pusava down in Portel, which they had stuffed pork. It was pork loin stuffed with prunes and a prune, uh, which is kind of a takeoff on um, a, a French dish, but they also have it with this wonderful port sauce. Now, we can't use the loin that we have here in America. It's not nearly as tender because they were using what's called porco preto, which is the black pig, and they... They sup on acorns the last three or four months of their life, and so its meat is very sweet and very tender. Uh, so I use a tenderloin for that. So that's in there. Uh, there's uh, there's a frango uh, piri piri, which is the chicken with the uh, piri piri sauce on it. Uh, there's also something that I got from this wonderful, wonderful chef who is now in Brazil. She was Portuguese. Uh, she uh, This milk mayonnaise, which is quote-unquote mayonnaise, so there's no egg in it, so it's not a true mayonnaise, but it's an, an emulsion of milk and oil and garlic, and it whips up into this wonderful mayonnaise-like consistency. And it's great for those people, like those moms who have kids who have egg allergies. And I give lots of variations. So there's a saffron one in there. There's a tomato version. There's a great one to put on steak, um, which has some anchovy and some other flavors in it. There's the orange olive oil cake, which comes right from this little place called Papage, which was just three or four um, doors up the hill from where I was living in Lisbon. And the story behind that is I would go there every day and I'd have it for breakfast. Now, the Portuguese don't eat desserts for breakfast. They just have their coffee, their shot of coffee, they knock it back, or maybe uh, a roll with some ham and a little bit of cheese, and that's all they have. And so all these Portuguese would look at me like, what is he doing at breakfast having this this cake? And I loved it so much, I asked the owner if I could have the recipe. And she said, yes, but you must credit us and you must credit the baker. And I said, of course I would. So I sent it back to one of my recipe testers while I was still living there in Lisbon. She made it and she's like, David, what is this cake supposed to be? I said, it's a dense, moist, marvelous bunt cake. She says, this is not that. I said, well, try it again and try it again and try it again. She kept on trying it. Oh, she said, David, this is a chiffon cake. And I'm like, this can't be. I looked at the recipe and it looked like a chiffon, but I thought maybe when you put it together, it would look and, and taste and have the texture of what I was having. And then finally, after 13 tries, I called up one of the chefs. Uh, I was now back in the States. I called one of the chefs I knew in Lisbon and said, Do you, does your mother and grandmother, ever, they ever make any kind of cakes with olive oil? He said, yeah, all the time, because butter, we don't really have a lot of butter. You know, in the old days, they didn't have it, because there aren't a lot of cows on the mainland. There are in the Azores. And I remember turning to my tester and saying, this is an orange olive oil cake. That's what it is. And from that point on, we started developing it. So that is, I think, one of the most popular recipes in the cookbook. And I was very honored to be taken by a friend in Paris to a pastry shop that was serving my cake. It was the orange olive oil cake. Oh, Whoa. how wonderful. Isn't that <laughs> wild? And, of course, the French Frenchified it. So instead of this big 12-cup bunt cake, it was this much more petite little bunt. Um, but it was it was very lovely. Same exact recipe. She knew she was friends with the pastry chef. And it was marvelous to see it there. And now, a lot of Portuguese rest, uh, restaurants throughout the country serve it, too. So it, there's it just many things. There's soups. During the summer, I always serve a white gazpacho, which is um, I got from that chef who told me about his mother and grandmother using olive oil in their cakes. Uh, it's a cucumber and it's fennel, it's almonds, uh, water, 
bread, olive oil, oregano, and one or two other things. And it makes a very white base, and it's just very fresh and very untomato way. There's no tomatoes in it. And then in the middle of it is like a crab salad. Uh, with some mayonnaise. I use the milk mayonnaise, and it's marvelous. And then, of course, Jeremiah, I'm sure you love this too, the Portuguese uh, pork and clams. Um, oh, yeah. Just amazing. And that's in there too. And oh my God, I could go on and go on. I just, so many wonderful dishes in there. So I have to tell you, I've had your book for a very long time, and I. I adore it. It's a really special book, and the stories are beautiful. And then just the way that you talk about. Portuguese cuisine, it's always, I feel like, written in America kind of with, I mean, recent, not historically kind of, you know, with a, almost like it's a museum thing. Like, this is how it's always been done, but the fact that you have this modern take on it is just so special. And well, thank um, you. the milk mayonnaise is ridiculous. <laughs> I've made some of the, the variations, because I'm not a mayonnaise person uh-huh. at all, but that's, oh my gosh, uh, my husband and I made it to go with your... Um, your um, salt cod fritters oh, yes. and just we were <laughs> we were dying and i believe isn't in your fritters you whip a little bit of egg white yes. right yes and that is the secret. genius genius yes because so, yeah those many 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 cooks have the potatoes and the salt cod there's no lightning agent in there and so they they're leaden balls and of course right. in portugal i don't know why they do this but they'll make these wonderful salt cod fritters or salt cod balls and they let them sit all day long and they're serving them at you know seven hours later and i'm like oh my god no but they do that's just that's just the way they do it but then i had read in a cookbook somewhere about using egg whites and so i asked around when i was there and some of the the more um, adventurous cooks had been doing things like that. And I thought that lightens it up very nicely. And then I also have to tell you that when Amanda and I were on the Great American Baking Show, Mm -hmm. we had to plan all of our recipes through the finale. I didn't make it to the finale, but my, um, we had to do um, hand pies in that prepare hand pies for that um, episode. So my hand pie was going to be a chicken and linguisa hand pie and was totally inspired by your recipe for the chicken pies. So I've always, (laughs) and I hear that. So uh, that, yeah, you're, you were part of that journey for me. Your book was, and whenever I make those people go nuts for them. So thank you for inspiring me. You're welcome. And that's one of those recipes that, it was so marvelous because uh, Alan, the one and I, went to uh, – I, I stayed there many months uh, throughout 2007, almost a, a big, big chunk of the year. And he came and visited several times. And this was one trip that we had gone down before I started living there. And we just started at Lisbon and went all the way down to the Algarve. And we didn't really know what we were going to find. We just knew there were certain restaurants we must go to. And there were certain, like, uh, Tishkina the Oliveira and Evera. We knew we needed to go there. But other places we didn't know. And I went to this little bake shop. I had never heard of these pies. And they, I asked what they are, and she told me, well, it's chicken and all these different ones. And I tried the chicken, and I just thought this was amazing. And it's something that I knew. I said, I knew I have to have this in the, in the cookbook because it never heard of it. No one in my family ever made it because from the Azores, you know, the big focus would be on fish a lot of times. Um, 
And, of course, the one pig that you raise all year and slaughter in December uh, for the Montanza. And a- after that, you know, chickens you really didn't kill because they were giving you eggs. So there really weren't tons and tons of chicken dishes that I grew up with uh, from the Azores. But when I had that, I thought I had to add it. It was something different, and you could add like you did. You could make it with ham. You could add so many different things to it. And I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's one story I want you to tell us sure. is about experiencing discovering your family's um, wood burning oven in the Azores. Oh, I just adore that story. All right. Oh, 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 oh. you sneaky little guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will get through this, I think, without crying. I still have a hard time. Uh, to me, it's the most uh, an important, one of the most important parts of the book. It, um, okay, well, ever since I was a child, my father would talk about the way uh, the families in the Azores. Where is your family from, by the way, Jeremiah? In the Azores, Fayal, right? Uh, yeah, we have one. One my one of my great grandmas is from San Miguel. Okay, and so in Maya, in San Miguel, the largest island, is where everyone in my family grew up. My mom's family grew up in Punta Delgada, which is the the capital, just on a couple of not that far away. Back then, it was like hours and hours away by mule or whatever, um, but. My father would tell the stories, tell me stories of how all the women in the neighborhood, because they were so poor, would get together and they would all bake, for instance, broa, which is the cornbread. And my grandmother, let's say, might make it on, might make 15 loaves on a Monday or whatever it was, a uh, number of loaves. And your mother, Jeremiah, would make hers on a Tuesday. And so then, Amanda, your mother may make it on a, let's say, a Saturday. But when my grandmother, when you, Amanda, ran out, you would go to the woman who was baking that day and ask okay. for a loaf to feed her family. And then when she baked, she would return the loaf back to you because you probably were running out. So there was this sense of community and there was this sense of taking care of each other. And all of this was done in a wall oven, just a simple, looks like a pizza oven. And that's where they did everything. They did their stews, they did their fish, they did their baking, everything was done there. And I'd heard about this wall oven again and again. So when I arrived with Alan at the door, I knocked and this very, I I was hearing this game show in the background. I thought, this is so not what I expected to hear. And when I go to the door of my father's house um, and this very short woman answered and there was someone watching a game show on this big screen tv which was shocking and i tried to explain who i was and the find this recognition she's hi david david and she called me in and so she called up her two daughters tajazinha and i forgot the other maria maybe and so we started talking and the whole house had been completely redone now. So my father talked about dirt floors and stucco walls. I mean, uh, uh, excuse me, rock walls. And this had beautiful white stucco walls. It had tiled floors. The kitchen had a refrigerator, a sink, an oven, uh, you know, just everything. And then the backyard where they used to keep the pig was just a place where they had the trash cans. It wasn't, they didn't have the pig anymore. Um, and, so it was nice to be there, but there was this, I didn't have this connection. So I asked uh, this woman who was the cousin of my, my father's father, my grandfather, is the wall oven still there? And she's like, see. Sí. And so she had Alan and I, um, she had Alan and I move 
this metal plate that was behind the stove, the actual uh, metal stove. And there it was. <clears throat> and it was all charred black. And it was at that moment <clears throat> that I came to realize how hard these, per these people had worked, how hard they worked just to survive. And how I had denigrated the Portuguese for so long, when I was, uh, especially when I was young, and thought them dumb and ignorant, and I had bought into all of that rhetoric that the uh, non-Portuguese had said about the Portuguese and my families, my family and other families. But I saw where it all began, and that it, this loop from childhood stories to actually standing in front of that that wall oven, um, it was complete. And I, uh, I say in the book that if roots could have sprung from the soles of my shoes and anchored me in that spot, they would have, because I felt for the first time I was truly Portuguese. Wow. And that story never fails to just get me every time. So special. It feels like a moment where you became you in, in some ways, a yeah. little bit. Because, you know, it's it, it earlier, right before we went in, it's, it's a bit of a funny story, because we were driving up and down and up and down all these hills, trying to find where to, this my family's house was. And there was this old guy who was watching us go up the hill and down the hill and up the hill and down the hill. And as we finally figured out where the road was we were walking down the street and Ellen said you know what are you thinking and I remember thinking I am here I am here and that came from when I was a kid my mother because I was a morose kid and I was always depressed and no one knew it uh, and my mother bought I mean my mother would go to the travel agency and get these catalogs of you know places all over the world and I used to make little um, scrapbooks of the Coliseum and the Eiffel Tower and the double-decker buses in London. I never, there was never anything about the Azores in these books, and I didn't care. I didn't want them anyway. And I remember I used to whisper into the book that I am here, I am here, I will be here. And I had visited all those places. And I remember thinking in front of the Eiffel Tower, I'm here, I'm here. Or being in front of the Coliseum, I'm here. But I never thought I would ever apply that I am here to my father's, the house my father grew up in, and the town everyone grew up in. I just never thought that would ever happen to me. And that's why it was so incredibly special. I love this story for so many reasons, but also I've had very similar experiences and my mom has too when she I took her back to the Azores for the first time. Mm -hmm. But so interesting is that um, on my most recent research trip to research for my cookbook to Portugal, mm -hmm. On the train or the train, the plane ride home, I just started, I needed to write like more kind of poetically. <laughs> and I wrote this whole poem talking about roots. And it's so, and how the roots, I just have this whole thing about roots. So when you talk, when, when you said roots in your story, when I heard it the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is something that we all experience, I think, as um, children of immigrants. <laughs> and then I was even talking with, um, um, a Portuguese man who runs the Porto food tours up north. And we were talking about how these generational memories are passed down and how like, you know, him and I, I mean, he's obviously port lives in Portugal, but like we have these same experiences and these same feelings about life and history and about the country. And it's just amazing that, you know, we've never all, you know, I didn't grow up with you, David, but we have these same, same experiences yeah. and these resonances that are, 
And I think even people who aren't Portuguese will be able to understand this feeling of connecting to a place, yes. a time and history through food, through love, mm-hmm. through all these things. And that's just, just incredible. There's no other, I, other thing, nothing like I it. I remember um, when I did, when the book for the memoir, Notes on a Banana first came out, I did a lot of readings and a lot of signings and I would read that section. And I would also read the earlier part where I didn't want to be Portuguese. And I would have people come up to me and say, you know what? I completely related with, related with you and related to what you were saying, but I'm not Portuguese. I'm Italian or I am Polish or I am uh, Irish. I completely relate to what you're saying. And I think all of us are longing to belong and longing for that place that connects us. And whether it be if you've been in America, your family's been in America for 25 generations or 10 generations, and your family knows nothing but America, we're always searching for a place that is home. And I think for us, we're so close to that generational divide of the immigrant divide. My father was the first one on his, my, his side of the family to come to America in 1958. Um, and uh, 1959, he was married in 58 to my mom. That it's it's very fresh, but with my mom, her parents came to America in nineteen nineteen, I believe. So, but your family, your third generation, I'm like one and a half generation, uh, but it's the same thing. Where we didn't, we don't have that rootedness in America, and I think until you find that place that is home, and not necessarily a place that you'll ever live, but a place that you come from. There's always this unrootedness, if you will. There's this lack of this 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 uh, this quality of just uh, of floating. And I know that when I got there, it it's I no longer felt out of place. And that I think Amanda goes back to your question a long time ago in this interview when you said, "What was it when you finally you know?" embrace your Portuguese, your Portuguese-ness and your, your heritage. And it was that moment that I no longer, the Portuguese wasn't something that I, I was, it's something, not was, <clears throat> let me try this again. It, it was no longer something that was a label. It was something of who I was. It became identity. And I think we, all of us want that, whatever it is, even in relationship, we want to have that sense of home and that sense of an identity in a relationship to someone, to a family, to a job, to a town, a community. We all want that and we crave it so much. You're so right. I think, uh, you know, because I don't have the same sort of heritage, but that feeling of identifying and feeling like, you know, like my last name is Faber and just in our small family of four, like we take a lot of pride in like, well, this is how the favors do it. You know, we are the favors and that feeling of identity and belonging is that part. I I can very much identify with. I'm curious just because it is kind of a foreign concept for me. um, Is it something now that you feels like in, in a lot of ways has you've made peace with it. Is it something you carry all the time? Do you feel like you need to go back to Portugal to kind of rejuvenate that feeling or is it more of like a state of being? And now whether you're in America or there, you, you kind of have that more 
like home feeling. I hope that makes sense. It does, and that's a great question. Once I wrote my cookbook, I was living there in 2007, came back, finished writing in 2008, came out in 2009. I went there in 2009 for a food event where I was a speaker. And um, I had spoken English, I had to have a translator. I don't speak that well in Portuguese. I hadn't been back since, I guess, 2009. And we just went back in May for the very first time. And I, I didn't know what to expect. And there was this sense of rejuvenation by being back in Lisbon, even though my family's from the Azores, I had lived in Lisbon. That's where I had most, I clocked the most hours was in Lisbon. And it was so wonderful to go back and see places that I had not seen for years and to be there amongst people who just, we share something that, that, is inexplicable. Like Americans share something with other Americans that other countries and other other nationalities don't necessarily understand. You know, you genetically, instinctively, they don't understand. And so the interesting thing is, after that trip, I wanted to move to Portugal. I wanted to just move to Portugal. And uh, I was even trying to convince Alan. You know, look at this. Oh, this house is. You know, it's only a million euro. We can we can like sell everything and go and. Um, so he laughed, but for my birthday, which was in July, because so we went in May, and my birthday's in July, he gave me a trip back to Lisbon for Christmas. So therefore, we've, I've never experienced Portugal in any other month except May, any other months. I've never experienced Portugal in any other month except usually June. So now we're going to go at Christmas time and see the traditions there and, and see the decorations. And we now have decided that we're going to go back basically every year and we're going to try and rent longer and longer times i may i may want to work uh, to a book about being a part-time resident because i have my my citizenship but it is something that is calling me now that it never did before and i think that there's i think there's something marvelous that happens when you live in a foreign country for a good time a good amount of time you know, in America or any country that you're from, the people you're in relationship to, the activities that you engage in, the traditions that you follow and carry, the places that you go, help to define you. And they also make you feel comforted. When you uproot yourself and go to a different country, even a different place, it can be another part of America, but I'm saying specifically in Portugal or a foreign country, you are, everything is uprooted again, everything's turned on its head. You have to understand different traditions, different culture, uh, different people, different ways of, of being, different ways of shopping, different ways of, of renting a home. And by doing that, it's impossible not to be changed. And I think I'm very curious about what will happen to Alan and I in our 50s. What, how will we change after doing this for five, eight, ten years of going back and forth and spending more time there. How will we be different? Will we be will we suddenly be residents and citizens of the world? Will we feel more Portuguese? Um, will we see America and 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 our lives here differently? Will it augment our life here? So it's a questions that I don't have the answers to yet, but I'm very curious to learn and to find out. I can't wait for that to play out and then Hopefully, 
very much fingers crossed that it's a book of yours that I can read in the future. <laughs> that would be nice because I know when I lived there for a big, big chunk of 2007, I had one goal and one goal only, which was to get as many recipes, meet as many people, interview as many people, and and just document as much as I could. So I wasn't living, if you were, I was simply working in Portugal. Yeah, and it's a yeah. very different experience. Nothing like the comforting power of chocolate. <laughs> okay. There's a segue for you. <laughs> <sighs> Tell us about the Hershey chocolate cake and what that means to you and the one. Okay. Well, again, I came to our relationship young, thin, and beautiful, and Alan was too. He's still thin and beautiful. Not so young, but anyway, um, I baking was not a part of my life, as I said, so he introduced me to the Hershey's chocolate cake, and uh, I had never had it that I could recall, and it's a specific cake that was made, I think, in the 1930s. It uses... Um, vegetable oil, hot water. I think it had something to do with the rationing that was going on at that point. It's an incredibly moist, incredibly chocolatey cake, and the frosting is marvelous. And I remember early on, it became the cake, it became an emotional currency for us. It was a celebration cake for birthdays. It was the I'm sorry I offended you cake. It became the anniversary cake. It became the consolation cake if something had gone wrong. It was the uh, I love you cake just because of today. And it became part of our language. And so we turn to it whenever we want to celebrate, but there are times we turn to it when life just really gets to us, and it's a way of comforting ourselves. It becomes this this solace. It becomes this succor, if you will. It's such a classic. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. The only thing I do differently is I add the proportion of butter is a lot higher in, in my version, but everything else is... Oh, and I also put uh, espresso granules, uh, instant espresso, into the cake. I was going to ask you that if you altered it in any particular way. So in the actual cake part, you put more butter. Is that? I put uh, no, the actual frosting. I'll the put frosting. more butter. Okay. So it's a little bit smoother. I don't really love, love American frosting, cake frosting, because it uses confectioner's sugar. And there's that very, very, very fine grit uh, that you have. And I think it's really maybe the corn starch or something. And um, so by adding a little extra butter, it smooths that out. And then I do put the espresso in the cake itself. So it kind of expands that. I've been doing that for long before Ina ever did it. Uh, I've been doing that for like 20 something years. Maybe she got it from you. You David. know, you never know. Because <laughs> you know, I know. I mean, she's always lurking in the front yard. Every time I go out there in the mailbox, there she is. Good old Ina. Yeah, well, hope, hopefully she's uh, she's listening and she'll feel the need to come on and set the record straight. <laughs> yeah. Good old Ina. I, I think that's a great tip, though, just like to get a little technical for two seconds. But a lot of people really don't care for that grit in American-style buttercream. And adding extra butter is a very easy way without having to like fully depart to a different type of buttercream. If, exactly. if you like everything else, it's like a quick fix. 
It really is. So you don't go to a French mousseline or you don't go to an Italian buttercream or, or a Swiss buttercream. So it really is a, a, a great thing. And also, too, you know, I'm sure you talk about this many, many times on this podcast, but I add salt to every sweet I make. So the frosting gets a pinch of salt. I just I add salt to every sweet. We need a button, Jeremiah, that sounds like angels singing. And when somebody says something (laughs) like that, I want to be like, oh, yes, yes, yes. It just rounds out the flavor. It just brings (laughs) some of those. It helps some of the bass notes come through and some of the brighter, higher notes come through. Exactly. Yes. I love that. Salt. I love that. A little salt and everything. Um, Okay. Well, while we're on a technical note. Sure. What baking recipes, if you had to pick one or two that you're like, listeners, please do not miss out on this. Yes. And this isn't a commercial for Hershey's. It's just that cake is so damn good. And a lot of people surprisingly have never made it. But the other recipe is the chocolate chip cookies that uh, was from the New York Times. Uh, Many, many people don't realize that I wrote that article for the New York Times. And I had finished an article for the Times about the fried clam trail because I adore fried clams. And if you're a New Englander, you know what fried clams are. They're battered they're battered in the deep fried clams. And it won a James Beard Award. And my editor at that time was uh, Pete Wells, who's now the restaurant uh, dining critic. And he said, well, whatever you want to do, we'll glad to do. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to do chocolate chip cookies. And I remember he turned to me and Nick Fox was also there, one of the editors. And he, Pete said to me, what could you possibly add to the canon of knowledge of chocolate chip cookies? And I said, I have no idea, but I'd like to try. Six months of research. And I came up with, I didn't develop the recipe. I kind of did an amalgam of things I'd learned from a lot of bakers and followed primarily uh, Jacques Torres's chocolate chip cookie recipe. And that's the one that has to be refrigerated for 24 to 36 hours. It uses the fevs or the discs of couverture chocolate because it melts into these incredible strata of chocolate. They're not compound chocolate, so they hold their shape. They really create these wonderful pools and strata of chocolate. And they're the cookies that I think started this whole big bang of putting salt on. I got that when I spoke to Dory Greenspan. So maybe it was actually it was her World Peace cookies that has the, the salt on it. And she said, I think that'd be a lovely thing on top of the chocolate chip cookies. So that's the one recipe I think that I really would love people to try. They just think, I'm not going to spend 36 hours waiting for a chocolate chip cookie when I can do the Toll House cookie in no time. The difference is astounding. Our listeners will. They better, (laughs) or I'm firing them. Well, David, we would keep you absolutely all day long and keep going because it's, I mean, I feel like, good good gracious, you're so great and articulate on so many different topics. But uh, we have to sneak in one last question. Sure. Classic flower hour question. We like to ask everyone this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could bake for anyone in the world, dead or alive, now or in the future, who would you bake for and what would you bake for them? Hmm. That's a great, great question. I think I would bake for my maternal grandmother. She never tasted any of my baking. And I think I would like to make my orange olive oil cake for her. To know that she affected me so deeply. And I'm carrying on what she taught me. It's beautiful. Oh, I love that. Beautiful. 
thank you so much for being with us. Like Amanda said, I could listen to your voice all day long. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. I, I, you guys are great interviewers. Oh, thank you so much. All right, until next time. Such a pleasure, David. I'm going to go make some chocolate chip cookies and uh, get back to you ASAP. Me too, actually. Me too. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. 